I am Tovacito. I believe our lives should be happy, healthy, and abundant. And I believe it's our job to get us there. Every week, I will have inspiring, educational, and fun conversations that will help you live your very best life. Welcome to The Remedy. Hey, everyone. Happy 4th of July week. Thank you so much for being here today and listening to us and the next episode of The Remedy with Tobacito. It's always awesome to have you um, tune in. And we're so excited for this episode, so excited for this holiday week. And really looking forward to having this conversation with a cool guy that I barely know, and I, but I cannot wait. I've been looking forward to this since um, a mutual friend of ours was telling me a little bit about your story. And I was like, I've got to get him on the remedy. And uh, with mm-hmm. the 4th of July holiday, I thought it would be a perfect um, perfect theme. So um, first, I got to give a major shout out to Nicholas and da- uh, Nicholas to <laughs> to my sweet friends Taylor and Dave Nichols, uh, not Nicholas, um, down in Austin, who are sponsoring this episode of the Remedy. Um, thanks so much, Dave and Tay Tay, who I love very much. Thank you for your incredibly kind and generous donation. Because of you, Kevin gets paid. Thank you, thank you for keeping us alive. And we get to record another week. Um, so thank you, thank you. Okay, so today I have in my studio a gentleman who looks like Jesus. Because <laughs> we all know exactly what Jesus looks like. Yeah. But no, I, I I only met you in yoga a couple weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Um but your hair was up, so I didn't know what I didn't know what you look like with your hair down. Mm. And Kev, don't you think if you knew what Jesus looked like, don't you think he looks like Jesus? Yeah, I mean the the kind of standard what people picture Jesus looks yeah. like. Yeah, definitely. He's got the kind <laughs> eyes and the curly long hair. Yes, and I was raised Catholic, so it's almost like intimidating having the Son of the Lord. <laughs> <laughs> so I met you at yoga, um, and a group of us went and had uh, a beer after down yep. at Farmer's Market. Super fun. Yeah. You, you did not talk a lot, but <laughs> we were all talking a lot. So, yeah. um, But afterwards, I ended up speaking with one of your friends, and she told me a little bit about your story. And um, a friend of mine had just, we were talking about how interesting it would be to get someone who had served uh, in the military to come. And I've never had anybody, which is hard to believe. Um, I've never had a guest who has served in the military. Or if they did, I didn't know. It's not part of their story. Um, So I'm really, really excited that you said yes and thank you for making the time, and thank you for being willing to share parts of your story that feel so foreign. I mean, I was laying in bed last night, Daniel, and I was thinking about having you on, and I was thinking how f- how ridiculous it is and how spoiled, I guess. I don't know what other word to use. It feels that I don't know anything about, I mean, I've read books, you know, I've watched war mm-hmm. movies, um, but I'm such a ninny when it comes to really understanding what it must be like to go to war. Yeah. I, I don't know. That makes two of us. <laughs> I don't know anything. And it's hard, you know, when you think about like, or at least when I've read books about World War One, World War Two, 
even Vietnam, it felt like the country was much more in tune with with those wars. Oh yeah. Um, and you were in Afghanistan. Right. And I'm going to have you tell a little bit about you know a lot about that, but you were in Afghanistan, and it just feels like. Um, and it would be interesting to get your perspective, but from where I sit, it seems like it was that was happening over there, and we were over here. It just felt like I I was removed from mm-hmm. from that situation, and um, it really wasn't a part of like the American culture, even though it should have been. Like it's a tragedy, really. That, like I was I was thinking about it, like how little I really know about it. Um, how little I know people's stories who've been there, how little respect or um, credit, you know, creed we give people who've served in the military mm-hmm. outside of like Memorial Day, you know, and church, we have them stand up and everybody claps for them. But like, you know, what do we really know about this war? Yeah. And, um, you know, I would could safely say that me and all my girlfriends know nothing yeah. like nothing and we're smart and well-read and um educated people and yet i feel like this war was has been we've been very far removed from it as as a as americans oh yeah so what do you agree with that yes i totally agree with you and um first off i'm just really excited to come on the podcast and have an opportunity to have a conversation like this Mm -hmm. uh usually i'm the one interviewing people so yeah. i usually don't get to talk about myself <laughs> well daniel and, has uh, a podcast too so for yeah. everybody listening uh tell everybody what the name of your podcast is it's called the danger zone the danger so, yeah, zone danger zone it's one word yeah, <laughs> okay yeah. which is very clever yeah. and you can find me online uh, daniel the barbarian that's my youtube channel and you know on instagram facebook all that so. okay and um if they want to find you on itunes Yep, it's the Danger Zone okay. podcast. Yeah. Okay, yep. it's just yeah, that. and it's on iTunes. It's on I've I video mine, so they're on YouTube and SoundCloud. Okay, yeah. awesome. Yeah. So this is a gr- this is, I'm so happy you're here. We have thousands and thousands of listeners all over the world, mm-hmm. and so it's exciting for me to open this door and create a platform for your story to be told because I think it's in, I think it's important. Yeah, and back to what you were saying is like I totally agree with you mm-hmm. and. It, it makes sense, um, both of you coming from your perspective of not really understanding uh, the military life, whereas mm-hmm. myself, I was born into a military family. So my perspective is like completely different. Of course, I'm like connected to it. It's running through my veins, mm-hmm. you know. You don't um, have that feeling of being removed that we do, you know, <laughs> no. from that, that lifestyle. Yeah. Yeah, I, uh, I, I have none of that. Yeah. So tell me about where, you, where, were, you, where were you born? Where'd you grow up? I grew up Your in family? Conway, Arkansas. And is that small town? town? Uh, it's grown over the years. It's larger now. I haven't been back in a long time. <laughs> but, like, uh, how many kids did you graduate with? Uh, I can't remember. I don't know. A thousand like, or so. Oh, yeah, big. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was oh, bigger. Okay. Yeah. okay. But uh, I grew up kind of on the outside of town on little 11 acres out in the woods. And so I spent a lot of my childhood just running around in the woods playing. <laughs> you look yeah. like you ran around <laughs> in the woods. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And... So was it good? Was it a good, child, yeah. happy? Yeah. Like, I I had a great childhood. Like, very fortunate. My my parents are still together. We had five, or they had five kids. Wow. So I'm one of five. And um, where are you in the line? I'm second. Okay. Yeah. So there's my older brother, me, 
I have a younger sister and then two younger brothers. Wow. So there's a sister between all of us. And what's the age difference? What's the span? Oh, God, you're going to put me on the... <laughs> okay. It's okay. You, yeah. It really doesn't matter. But um, are you guys all close? Yeah, my, my older brother and I are real close. Uh, my younger brother probably is uh, 12 years younger than us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's a span. Yeah, yeah. We got a pretty good spread. That's awesome. My parents were like... They wanted to treat it like the Oregon Trail. Like <laughs> you gotta have enough kids to like survive the trip out, out to Oregon. <laughs> I'm like, we're staying in one spot. <laughs> well, I didn't even have a bunch of kids, but no, I, I love mm-hmm. them all. I'm glad they did. That's so, awesome. Yeah. But I had a, I had a really good childhood. Yeah. Did was, you go to school? Yep. Okay, yep. where'd you go? Yep. I went to uh Conway High School. Yeah, so it was a public school. Okay. Yeah, so you yeah. went to Conway High School and then did you go to college? Nope. You went straight I, to I the went military? I went straight in the military okay. a week after I graduated high school. Why? Because Did you always know that you wanted yeah. to do that? So my father was in the Army, mm-hmm. and he had already deployed to Afghanistan before I even graduated. Um, I think what? my junior year. Yeah. He so your dad, when you were a junior in high school, left to go serve in Afghanistan? Afghanistan. Yeah, that's how long we've been in this war. It's like <laughs> I didn't even know that dads could do that. I thought there was like a age thing. Is that uh, stupid? No, he's he's an officer. So yeah, okay. I mean, there's if you think about general officers, they're uh-huh. like in their sixties or you know older. Yeah, there's not there's age restrictions to join, um, but yeah, people get old. <laughs> so what was in. he doing before he went to Afghanistan? Uh, he was working in the National Guard in Arkansas. Okay, so yeah. he's always been serving yeah. mm-hmm. his country in some capacity. Yeah, and his brother was in the Marine Reserves, uh, Marine Corps officer. So, um, And then his other brother was in the Air Force, oh, uh, wow. I think as an uh, optometrist or something like that. Where but did this come from? Where did this love of um, military come from? Was it their father? No, their, their father was actually really into sports and kind of an entrepreneur. And starting a bunch of businesses and stuff, which also kind of runs in our family. Mm-hmm. And uh, it kind of started with his generation, for whatever reason. There, it, it kind of skipped a good generation, I guess. Um, the we have great grandfathers that were like, in, you know, War One, mm-hmm. and you know, even back to the Civil War, uh, fighting for the North, and uh, long, long history as far as back. But it seemed like it skipped a generation. And for whatever reason, my father and his brothers really made an emphasis on service mm. uh, in the military wow. and on us, like mm. the children. So I have two cousins that served in the Marines. My older brother was a West Point grad, Army wow. infantry officer. My youngest brother is an Army officer right now, uh, intel officer. And uh, I enlisted in the Navy right out of high school. So you're uh, 18 years old. Yep. You're graduating. And did you ever, ever question or think? No. You you just couldn't wait to get it out was, and go. It was, it was. I was raised to join the military, so I, I joke around and say like I was a child soldier. <laughs> like I was, that was what I was going to do. Like I was fulfilling sort of my, you know, your calling. Yeah, my calling. And were we already? So we were already fighting yeah. in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. So you know that you're you're signing up, and you could very well yeah. head there. Yeah, and. uh I try to explain to some people how, um, you know, some some people are like, well, how how could you enjoy going to war? I enjoyed going to war, and it was um, when you have been like working towards something all your life, mm-hmm. like it's 
you're able to do your job at like the highest level, mm. you know, when you're answering your calling on your yeah, life. Yeah. It's and not so you're like, hard. you're, you're, you're reaching like ultimate fulfillment mm. in your calling. It's really good. And so it felt like you were doing the right thing at the right time mm-hmm. in the right space. Right. So you sign up. Almost like an athlete getting into the majors or something. You know what I mean? Uh, like yeah. Your destiny. Yeah. 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 Everything that you've like kind of worked and trained for in, yep. in and, action. And then. Okay. So you sign up. What, how do people sign up? Um, this is how stupid it, I. Yeah, <laughs> so I'm I gonna mean, ask you really. You go. You go to a re- recruiter questions. office, and okay. you you know they lie to you, and they get you to sign contracts, and you end up in a job you don't want or something <laughs> like that. That's typically what happens. Yeah. I did a bunch of research beforehand. Yeah. So oh. if you want to join, you need to do a bunch of research. It's like a pl- think of it like applying for a job. Okay. Like and where do people go to find good research? Um, where do people find the good information? Find, Find the job you want to do in the military and find somebody who does that or has done it and, you know. And then ask their path. Talk, yeah. Talk to them. Ask okay. them tons of questions. So you knew the path mm-hmm. and the way because of your family. Yeah. And so. And I, yeah. And, and I so researched yeah. What was your job? What job did you know that you wanted? So I knew I wanted to be a special operations mm-hmm. and because I knew I wanted to go to war. And if I was going to war, I wanted to go with like the best crew possible. Like, I don't know what special operations means. Um, so there's special. And op- if you're listening and you know, and that's dumb, don't don't judge me. Yeah. <laughs> so there's there's a bunch of different roles in the military. From mm-hmm. you know uh, the guys, you know, big group of guys on the ground. Um, the the ro- different roles in the military have sort of developed over the span of history, right? So as, as needs change. So where we used to meet on battlefields and think of like, you know, swords and shields and stuff, everybody kind of running at each other and smacking each mm-hmm. other. You'd have guys on horses that were like cavalry or this and that. Mm-hmm. So over the years, we still have big groups of guys like infantry. They're the m- main effort to like fight in big areas against big forces, right? Mm-hmm. But as we've, warfare has changed as, you know, modern technology and everything like that over the years, um, we've gotten into a lot more guerrilla warfare, right? Mm-hmm. So you need uh, people who are capable of working in smaller units, uh, well together, training foreign fighters. Um, and so it kind of started during World War II. I mean, there's been lots of history of guerrilla warfare, kind of guys working in smaller special units. Mm-hmm. But as far as the U.S. military, um, the... Marine Raiders, the OSS, Office of Special Services. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were the ones dropping behind enemy lines in World War II in Germany and, uh, you know, carrying out sabotage operations and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So usually somebody in special operations is, you know, they're qualified for jumping and different ways of getting into uh, a battlefield area. Mm-hmm. And they work with locals to sort of fight in a resistance. Mm-hmm. Um, so as opposed to just being like on a main line, like working against other main line troops, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah. So that's how it kind of developed. Um, the role how interesting. now of special operations is very diverse. Um, we're doing stuff all over the world right now. And there's, you know, several different uh, layers to special operations. And I was with Marine Special Operations. Okay. So, and I was a medic. So I was a special operations medic. Oh, so gosh. You get, you know, some additional training and qualifications. And, um, yeah. And so that, that was that was my job. 
So what does so you sign up and what does training look like? Where do you go? How long are you there? All, all over the place. Um, so the first two years I was in, I was actually a casket bearer in Washington D.C. in the Presidential Honor Guard. So that was kind of like a break period between boot camp and the rest of my training. So are you familiar with Arlington Cemetery? Uh huh. Yeah. So I worked in Arlington Cemetery doing funerals for two years. And um, that was a really cool experience as a young 19-year-old. I can't even imagine. It was uh, very, it was a good maturization process. And what did you do? If you say you worked funerals or you worked you at cemetery, what did you do? Carry a casket, you know, fold the flag, present it to the... The family? Yeah, the family, yeah. Daniel, <laughs> how did you do that? How did you do that at such a young age? It's your job. It's your job, and it's... I would I would compare it to if anybody knows like uh, trauma doctors or uh, ER nurses and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. People who are around trauma on a regular basis, they're just kind of used to it. And it's just part of their life. It's part of their job. Mm -hmm. That's kind of how it was um, while I was there. How did you? Because um, if I I I'm an ordained pastor mm -hmm. and I've done a lot of funerals mm -hmm. and <clears throat> I've officiated a lot of funerals and. One thing that has never gotten old for me is understanding and knowing and feeling that I may have done a hundred funerals, but this is still a person. Mm -hmm. Like it's not, it's not um, transactional. You know, it's right. never been transactional for me, and or weddings. You know, like it, it, because it, to to this person, like honoring this person mm -hmm. is the most. It's. I mean, outside of their birthday, there's nothing, I mean, it's equally as beautiful and holy and sacred as their death day. Yeah. And so how did you do this job day after day after day and, you know, lower, carry caskets and lower caskets and fold flags and it not feel routine? Um, well, we trained really hard and it was at that level of, of ceremony and everything, you have to like com be completely stoic. Mm -hmm. um, if if you broke out of your like stoicism for whatever reason, you'd get in big trouble. So, oh. um, so you're trained. Yeah, we're trained. Just I mean, we would stand. It's a great in word. the training. We'd stand for three hours at a time, just staring straight at the wall, like not doing anything. Wow. So you get really good at like. <laughs> Some headspace stuff, wow. you know, just like, yeah, you know, letting your mind wander, think about things, and mm -hmm. yeah. So we were trained to just like mm. be very to be a presence, yeah, without mm -hmm. being um, emotional, yeah. mm -hmm. not mm -hmm. taken away from the the family's um, morning closure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there was wow, I didn't realize. So I made the mistake of thinking like, oh, it's just like my job, and you know. I was able to deal with that no problem for years until I actually got out of the military and I went to the, uh, what is it? The Reagan presidential library mm -hmm. out in California. Mm -hmm. And at the end of his, you know, it's kind of like a museum. Mm -hmm. And at the end of it, they have his, uh, funeral procession, mm -hmm. like huge mural, like photo on the wall. And the guys who are carrying the casket for him are the guys who trained me to, carry caskets and like do funerals and 
Wow. Um, so I'd done funerals with these guys. And so all of a sudden it was like all those two years of like, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of funerals I had done, like hit me at once and I almost broke down, just like fell over inside the Reagan wow. uh, presidential library. And uh, it's like you felt I was it. like, oh man, yeah, I guess I am human to some degree. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so. Uh, but you, was, at the time you had a job to do. Yeah. And there were several that uh, stood out to me even while I was there. Uh, one in particular, there was an elderly woman. Um, so you, you having done funerals, like there's a funeral rep, you know, the yep. people that kind of manage the family and, hey, come stand here and this and that. So they came up to me before the funeral, you know, a lot of times, you know, they'd come up if there's something different uh, out of the ordinary happening during a funeral. And they just kind of give you a heads up so you know how to work around it. And so for this one, they came up and said, hey, the widow, and this is a World War II vet that had passed away. Mm -hmm. uh, the widow has Parkinson's and Alzheimer's basically like completely out of it. And uh, she won't be able to hold the flag in her lap. So her niece or whoever is going to like, put the flag in her lap and they'll put their hand on it and hold it there and make sure it doesn't fall. It's like, okay, cool. So, uh, that's, you know, not a, not a big deal or anything. Right. And so we go in and I was presenting the flag that day. And so we did the ceremony, we folded the flag and I went to present it to her and I could see her out of the corner of my eye during the ceremony. Um, and she was just kind of shaking and mm -hmm. stuff, uh, uncontrollably. And then, I went to present her the flag and I got down on my knee and went to give the bearer speech and she completely stopped shaking, made eye contact with me and started crying. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And so I, you know, presented her the flag saluted. And as soon as I turned to walk away, she went back to like, you know, wow. out of it. And I, that like stuck with me. Like that's how important that moment is to, you know, a family member that, wow. you know, loves the one, you know, the, someone that's passed away. Yeah. <coughs> I have chills. That is, yeah. I believe, I mean, of course that happened. And then uh, one I didn't discover, one just kind of felt impactful to me for some reason. And it was some repatriated marine, uh, remains from Vietnam. So we had, you know, uh, there's still remains over there that we haven't found from people that have died. Mm. And so... Uh, they actually have crews over there that search for them. Um, and so they had found some while I was, while I was stationed there. And so they brought them back and it was a Marine team. And, uh, so there's three Marines uh, teams carrying caskets and then one Navy. And so I didn't realize like a lot of times we don't get details of, like who it is or, you know, anything beforehand. We just know we have like a ceremony to do. Mm -hmm. And so, it was a Memorial Day. Once I had gotten out, I just decided like to spend that day in reflection of, you know, what, what Memorial Day means of like the ones we've lost. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, let me think back on my time as a casket bearer. And so I started thinking about that funeral. I decided to look up the details on it. Turns out that was a Marine recon team, which is a precursor to Marine Special Operations. And the Navy guy was a uh, medic with like Marine special operations. Mm. And that's what I went on to become. So mm. I didn't even realize it, but I had buried one of my brothers mm. like in my job before I even became one. And I thought that was kind of cool. That's why it felt special. Yeah. yeah. And I, did, I didn't it. even know why at the time. 
That's incredible. Yeah. Wow. But, uh, yeah, so then I went on and did a uh, bunch Thank of... Thank you. Thank you for sharing those <laughs> stories. Yeah. Kev, I mean, I don't, even, I don't even have words for <laughs> this. Dang. Okay, so you... You do yeah. that for two years, yeah. and then what was next? And then jump in. And this in, is yeah. all part of yeah. your training. Uh, no, that that was the duty station. So that's oh, okay. like my job. For, okay. Yeah, and okay. they want you straight out of boot camp because you still know how to march and do everything really, you know, mm. sharply. And, and you're probably in great shape and young. Yeah. And mm -hmm. How long is boot camp? Uh, eight weeks. Is it as bad as everybody talks about? Uh, maybe for some, but <laughs> it's not. <laughs> it's not bad when you've been like working towards it all your life. Mm. No. no. You're ready. Yeah. So. Okay, so after after yeah. you work at the Arlington, yeah. So then I went to core school, which is like Navy. Um, so the Marines don't have their own medics; they use mm. Navy corpsmen. They they always have. So, um, and the Navy corpsmen dates back even to like the time of wooden ships, which mm. was called the uh, Lob Lolly Boys. Mm -hmm. They'd be like surgeon assistants. They go around and grab stuff for surgeons. Okay. And so, super long history. Um, and so. I went to core school in Chicago and then uh, went to field med school, which is kind of like in core school, you're learning to be a sort of assistant nurse's assistant in a hospital. And how long so, was that? How long was that training? Uh, like eight weeks or so, okay. 12 weeks. I don't know. Quick. I can't remember. <laughs> um, but yeah, so you're getting very basic medical knowledge there. Then field medical school, you're learning sort of the more trauma side of it of being with the marines sort of in warfare mm -hmm. and uh being able to treat combat injuries mm -hmm. and then from there i got uh i tried out for the marine special operations medic program and, and how do you try out for that uh you volunteer and they have a little uh physical screening test you show up and you do better than everybody else or you know so physically yeah. you have to have certain requirements but are oh, yeah. you also like is it is there a written test um no there are some qualifications like your asvab i don't know if you if you remember. i don't know what that is it's a test they come by and like give you in high school mm -hmm. um and not everybody takes it but it's basically like a test to see what jobs you qualify oh, for in the, okay. the military it's kind of like a sat or act for the, the military. military yeah mm -hmm. and so um, I had scored high enough on it that they wanted me to be a, like, when I went to the recruiting office, they tried to get me to be a nuclear, uh, tech. And I was like, no, <laughs> what I want to go to war. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, so yeah, so there are like requirements for that. Mm -hmm. Um, and if anybody's interested, they should just research it. Cause it gets, I mean, I could spend a lot of time getting in the weeds of what qualifies you, but mm -hmm. it's kind of, kind of boring. Okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, you, you have to be you have to be really physically fit, mm -hmm. and uh, because in special operations you're doing jumping, diving, so you're jumping out of planes, you're doing um, underwater dives, as far as like inserting platforms, so swimming from like two kilometers out in the ocean, underwater on a rebreather. Um, What's that? What's a a rebreather is yeah. like? So have you been scuba diving? Mm -mm. Okay, so uh, when you're scuba diving, you're breathing air out of a tank. Mm -hmm. And there's a regulator. So when you breathe in, you're sucking in air from the tank. And then when you breathe out, it pushes past the regulator and out. And that's why there's bubbles. Oh, okay. Um, when you see people scuba diving. A rebreather is you, um, the rebreathers we're using uses like pure oxygen. Like mm -hmm. a, a regular scuba diving tank is using air like that they just take from the air. So it's mixed gases. But we have pure oxygen 
And so you breathe that into one hose and then you breathe it out another one and it goes through a soda lime canister of like particulate that scrubs, you, you know, you breathe out CO2, mm -hmm. it scrubs off the carbon and then basically you get the O2 So bag. you're re it's, it's re... It's recycling. Yes. There. And that just gives you way yeah. more time under? Um, no, what it does is it makes it more tactical. Pure? No, so when you're scuba diving, there's bubbles. Uh -huh. Oh, so those they're visible. Oh. Those yeah. bubbles come up <laughs> to the surface, and then you people can see that there's oh. divers underneath because you can see where the bubbles see, are. See, this is gotcha. why we wouldn't make so, it. No. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm like, because it's more no efficient? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, and it's actually like um, you can't go as deep. There is O2 to toxicity from like breathing oxygen under pressure. There's tons of dive-related injuries. Uh, actually, the last course I went through was dive medicine. So I learned how to run the recompression chambers, treat all dive-related injuries, and uh, yeah. So with the rebreather, you don't have a regulator in your mouth? It's like a full face um, mask deal? No, no it, it has, uh, yeah, you, you have a mouthpiece. Okay. And gotcha. there, then there's two hoses coming out of it, one where your air is coming in and then where you're breathing out. So it's kind of a, a valve system where you can't breathe through the intake hose. It goes out the exhale Jeez. hose. Yeah. And the thing about uh, those rebreathers is it's actually difficult to breathe out. So, like, you have to push the air through this. Um, it's like yoga. You yeah. have to, like, really yeah. think about your breathing. Yeah. If you, <laughs> yeah. You realize real quick that you've never had to, like, think, think. about, think about yeah. breathing yeah. out. Yeah. <laughs> like, pass something. <laughs> yeah. Like, forcefully. And then you're uh, finning underwater. So, you're, like, kicking you know, and you don't, you only have so much time you're doing it quickly. So you're kicking underwater. So you're working out, but also having to work to like push your air through. So it's quite the workout. Like kicking yeah. while blowing up a balloon almost. So. Yeah. yeah. So it's, yeah, you got to be in good shape. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So you do that. You train those two places. Yeah. Well, so. Or do those two trainings. Yeah. And so let's see. And then I went through uh, airborne school in Georgia. So I bounce around all, all over the place for these trainings. Uh, mm -hmm. Some are out in California. The, the Airborne was in Georgia. That's where you're jumping out of airplane. Mm -hmm. um, they just did a jump over Normandy. This is a little history for you. Um, for so, the 75th thing? Yeah. Did mm -hmm. you see that? No. Okay. I just know it was 75 years. And apparently some of the guys who jumped in World War II jumped. Like in their, in yeah. their 90s now. Yeah. Yeah. Seriously? That's yeah, so cool. Oh, I got to yeah. look that up. Yeah. Oh, I bet that was amazing. Yeah. I have friends who were actually there this week. Oh, awesome. I mean, I can't even imagine I what wish that was, I was like. There. Yeah. Oh. So yeah. the first time you jumped out of a plane. Yeah. It what was, was awesome. that like? Were you ever scared? No. Yeah. I, I You're have, right. You were born for this. <laughs> I, re I really was. Like, some people are like, oh, man. Like, I, for some reason, it's just always made sense to me. I, you know, I joke and say I have a wire loose, but <laughs> I also, I think I have a really strong uh, willpower. Well, it's just in your blood. Yeah. It's just what you were created yeah. for. So, all together, how long is your training to become special ops? Um, Like two years, over two years. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow, they take it very seriously. Yeah. And okay, and so then when do you, when did you leave? Uh, 2009. And what's it, what's it called? When uh, you, deploy. You, okay. Yeah. When were you deployed? Uh, 2000, uh, well, 2010, sorry. Yeah, 2009, I got to my first unit, uh, first recon battalion out of California. 
and we deployed to Afghanistan in 2010 in southern Afghanistan, Helmand. Helmand? Helmand province, yeah. Okay. And um, when when you were waiting to go in California, what is the what is that wait about? And what are we're, you doing? We're training. Okay. So, you know, even though I had finished all these mm-hmm. uh, sort of like qualification courses, like mm-hmm. – um, then you show up and then you get with your unit and then you immediately start training for the, the job you're going to do okay. when you deploy. So you start working as a team. Mm. Um, you know, if you could compare it to sports, think of like summer camp, okay. summer training, tra- camp. training camp mm-hmm. or whatever. They're getting mm-hmm. ready for the football season. Like and our, so they, our football season is deployment. Okay. Yeah. And they, they know at the time that you guys all become a unit, what the, what the uh, task is going um, to be? Va- vaguely. I mean, okay. we're, we're getting, uh, you know, sort of that directions. It's it's a very dynamic situation over Af- Afghanistan. So mm-hmm. things are always constantly changing, right? Mm-hmm. And so you kind of may have a general idea mm-hmm. what you're working towards, mm-hmm. and they usually try and come up with the training based off of like the people who are just coming back. Like, what did they experience? Um, How so, many guys are in your unit, or wh- men and uh, women, or just men? Just men. Okay. Yeah. And how many can women be in special ops? Um, that's changing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's like actively changing now. Okay. And and there there have been women in special operations to certain mm-hmm. degrees. There's just been some units that have uh, been male only for for a while now, but there was women in World War Two mm-hmm. doing doing stuff with OSS and uh, um, uh, what is what's her name? Uh, Julia Child. Mm-hmm. She was the a, cook. She yeah she the was chef? she was a uh, uh, office worker for the OSS office office. Of, I did not uh, know that about special her. Special service yeah yeah. I didn't see her movie. Was that in that movie? Um, I think so. Hmm. Yeah, but it might not like click with people. <laughs> but yeah, so. So how many people are in your unit? Um, or how many men? Yeah, so I was in First Recon Battalion, which is uh, hundreds and hundreds of people and support and uh so you have like you know supply and logistics and um all those uh sort of uh, supporting units Mm -hmm. attached to you as well Mm -hmm. but i was in bravo company which would have been uh you know over 100 guys Mm -hmm. and then i was in uh third platoon which was like 20 something guys okay and then we had three teams and since i was i was the only medic for my platoon uh each time a team would go out i would go out Every time. Oh, so wow. no matter what team was going out, I was going out. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And and paint the scene of what's happening in Afghanistan at yeah. the time. Give so, us the okay. timeline of okay. what's so going on. 2009. Mm-hmm. So just think we've already been in this war since 2001. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and my father's already deployed there. My father was actually had gotten out of the military and was working as a contractor over there during my first deployment. So we were in country at the same time. Oh, wow. Did yeah. you ever see him? No. But, uh, yeah. So So he was not working for the military. He was... He was a government contractor. So oh. he's working for the military, okay. but as a okay. civilian. Got it. Okay. And wow. so... Uh, Where was your mom? She was back home. Oh. Yeah. Your mom's cool. Yeah, I'm responsible for a couple <laughs> gray hairs. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah. believe that. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, so we... So give you an example of like what our training was like. We were training up in the mountains to do reconnaissance, like where we'd sit on the, you know, a hillside and observe a village or something like that or enemy activity and basically report back. Mm. And 
uh, that's not what we ended up doing at all once we got in country. Uh, once we got in country, it was right during that time. There was a big troop surge in 2009. Obama, Obama's in office. There was a troop surge in Afghanistan. We're saying, hey, we're going we're gonna to try and get out of Afghanistan by bringing in a bunch of troops, try and clear out these areas, and then you know, hopefully we'll be able to come back earlier. Mm. So you know, get more so, military Spoiler alert, there. we're still there. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> Troop surge didn't work, but uh, so the but the idea from Obama's leadership was yeah. let's get more military and let's get the job done and get these guys home. Yeah, in theory. Yeah, and I'm reading a book on uh, Vietnam right now that uh, we were doing the same thing back then too. But uh, um, a for effort. Yeah. So <laughs> so, anyways, we we deploy and we're we ended up doing human train mapping operations, which is basically they didn't know. They'd, they'd pushed in this area called Marja. You might have seen that on the news a lot or heard that name. But I don't ever watch the yeah. news, so I'm learning a lot today. Um, <laughs> but the Marines had pushed into to Marja, and so they uh, needed somebody to go in and find out where the fighters were coming in. They they kind of theorized that hey, they're you know from the intel we're getting, they're coming from the village next to us or whatever. Mm-hmm. So they basically flew our whole. Uh, uh, Bravo Company and Charlie Company from First Recon Battalion into that area, dropped us off, and we spent 30 days going around talking to people was the mission. Like, How do they drop you off? By helicopter insert. So at night, we'd fly in on helicopters and you'd run out with your gear and stuff. Wow. Yeah. And so what our mission was to go talk to people and find out, hey, where are the bad guys at? Hmm. Didn't take us long. The first day we were in, we ended up in full gunfights, and it turned out we had landed and the Taliban's like home village. So you didn't know that going in. No. And, uh, so we ended up there. I think there was only two days we weren't in full on gunfights out of like 30 days. And, uh, this point, are you scared? No, (laughs) you never get scared. Um, not really. No. Did you see other people get real scared? Yeah. I'm getting scared just hearing about it. I know. I know. Like I said, I was, in special operations, you spend a lot of time training and getting ready for this. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's game day at this point. Wow. And you are, you know, performing this at the, is what you've been waiting the for. highest level mm-hmm. of, you know, human warfare where people are trying to kill you. <laughs> and you have to do better than them. So, but yeah. So, um, so tell me, where do you sleep? What do you eat? What are you... what do you do how do you how do you do that how do you live how do you sleep when people are trying to kill you how do you this blows my mind well have you ever had an adrenaline rush yes and then felt the tiredness afterwards yes yeah you can sleep yeah humans are super resilient i think a lot of people um and that's where i kind of like to talk to things is like uh, just, I think a lot of people think, oh, the military and combat experience is this like isolated and special deal that nobody can understand. Mm-hmm. But really, it's it's very similar to a lot of things people experience in you know their their lifetimes. And I I don't argue with that. I think that the thing that I acknowledge is probably different, and I could mm-hmm. be totally wrong because I don't, really don't know anything about serving um, the way that you have. But I would imagine that. The intensity of it. Yes, I've had adrenaline. Yes, I've felt trauma. Yes, I've been sad. Yes, I've been scared. But like, you know, 
99.9% of my day is actually happy and peaceful. Yeah. And yet it seems like what what you're describing that we all go through is happening often. Yeah. Like you're seeing and intense things, you're hearing intense things, you're what you know, you're observing, you're you have to always be on guard. Yeah. I mean, I can't even imagine like if you're being if you're being pursued how do you, how, I mean, I get like adrenaline rush and then it's over, but how could you ever really rest? Because you have people watching your back. Oh. That's the thing. Like we're, we're not all sleeping so you're at just the same shifting. time. Yeah. You're doing it yeah. in shifts. So there's always somebody, you know, your, your buddy's up there watching your back. And so that's why you sleep, you know? I don't think I could, I just don't yeah. And it, but maybe it, you just, that's what the brotherhood's yeah. about. Cause you got to trust your brother. And not everybody deals with it the same. Some some people even after going through all the training and everything, they still it it bothers them for some reason. And um, I think I was just you know from my upbringing, I was ready, like I was ready to receive that sort of level of life experience. And uh, I think that's why my journey's been a little easier than than others has. A lot of people it kind of you know affects them significantly and follows them throughout their life um so i would say uh, yeah it was that that deployment to me was a lot of fun actually um we got in a lot of gunfights our whole battalion we didn't lose a single person oh wow yeah so we were so good at our jobs that Damn. Like, we didn't lose a single person um over and how many days? How long was over that? Over nine months. That is unbelievable. Yeah. So, so you're in this for nine months yeah. and you don't lose one guy. Yeah. That's incredible, and Daniel. We had three guys oh my gosh. step on uh, IEDs, mm -hmm. improvised explosive devices. Mm -hmm. so, so a bomb in the ground. Think of a, mm -hmm. the Boston Marathon bombings. You know, they take that, but they put it in the ground. You step on it. And uh, we had good buddy of mine, he was a special operations medic. He lost uh, both legs and then uh, one arm. And uh, then we had two two Marines uh, step on IEDs and they lost their legs. And are you helping these guys? Because you're the medic? Um, I wasn't with uh, either one of those. The One of the guys, I was on the, uh, it was my turn to be on watch. So I was actually on a post when the, you know, when he stepped on the ID, they were out on patrol. So I was there, but I wasn't, you know, with his uh, platoon. So, but because of the blast injury, there was other guys who got peppered with shrapnel and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, got concussed from the, the blast wave. I treated all those guys once they came back after they had flown mm -hmm. him out on a helicopter. So... Were you ever injured in combat? Yep. Yeah. On my second deployment. So after that first deployment, came back and... So after nine months, yeah. you, you come home? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. I just have to ask, what is it like to be in combat for nine months and to live... The, wait, you didn't answer where you slept or where you ate. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> I yeah. still need to know that. Slept on the ground. Yeah. Did you ever yeah. shower? I had... Uh, with water bottles, like this, this plastic water bottle. If you like stab a hole in the top of it, you can like get a little spray, so you get a little pressure on it. Like but, a shower uh, head, <laughs> in theory. <laughs> yeah, but uh, 
So for yeah. nine-ish months. Yeah, and they didn't like us taking showers with the bottle of water because we only have so much. Yeah, and it's we're, we were getting, uh, so we had to go out with like tons of supplies because we yeah. didn't know how long we were yeah. going to be I, out there. I can see where hygiene wouldn't be my top priority yeah. with all this going on. Yeah, dude. I guess um, <laughs> does you, does you, Do you just forget about it? This like, is, uh, uh, no. <laughs> that was kind of the annoying thing. This was summer in Afghanistan. We're sleeping out in the elements. Um, You've got all your gear we're on. We're out in the sun all day. And yeah, you have your gear on a lot. And then when you're sleeping, there were sand flies. So you'd wake up and it just like bites over your entire body. And it's just like, Ugh. I had brought, I thought I was like smart. So I had gone to REI, you know, before I deployed. And I got like the most powerful DEET, like, <laughs> it was like concentrate oil <laughs> stuff, you know. The Afghanistan insects are like prehistoric they don't care <laughs> didn't do anything they don't they don't care about they don't DEET. know what deed is <laughs> doesn't matter they think it's like they think it's like a syrup glaze over your skin they just lick it up and bite you oh, yeah. oh gosh um how yeah. miserable yeah so that was like yeah it was a little bit miserable but you're with some of the best men you'll ever meet in your life mm-hmm. boredom you just like you have so much fun. Just I bet there's some great bullshit. Yeah. So <laughs> stories. Yeah. And so you're just. I think what what I was going to kind of lead into is the adversity. Mm-hmm. Is I think what you were kind of mentioning is a lot of people don't have adversity in their life. Yeah. Their life's like pretty easy. Things are pretty like peaceful. You yeah. know. Um, and so I had sought out adversity from a young like young age you know spending time out out in the woods by myself you know um even when i was training to go in the military i'd spend time like sneaking around in the woods where i'd be like crawling on the ground for like hours and stuff so adversity you know adverse environments all that stuff was not foreign to me it's mm-hmm. something that i've like trained myself to deal with train mm-hmm. you know trained to deal with you know pain and stuff like that so um and part of the military training like helps you be in sort of adverse environments because the training environments we're doing, we're, we're out for, you know, sleeping out the same way we would there, but we're mm-hmm. just in, you know, training somewhere in the U S. Mm-hmm. So you're kind of training in that adverse environment where, um, just sort of like training in the gym, you know, you're, you're putting your body through adversity to like be better prepared, right. Um, mm-hmm. to handle, you know, the randomness life throws you. But as far as like the level of, action and um stuff that's happening in combat Mm -hmm. takes a lot of preparation Mm -hmm. and adversity to be able to handle that well um and that's why if it happened to your average civilian they They crack they just they don't know how to deal with it Mm -hmm. um because even people that have trained for it Mm -hmm. like crack Mm -hmm. under it too so Mm -hmm. what um, does that look like when that happens uh I'm sure you've seen yeah, plenty of it. We, one of my team leaders, um, we were getting, we were patrolling through this field, uh, poppy field, and we came under fire from machine guns, and um, we needed to move up to this canal system because we can get under cover, um, you know, put a bunch of mud between us and the guys shooting at us. And he dropped on the ground in the middle of the field, curled up in a ball, and just like, laid there and so myself and another guy had to like run through the field grab him like literally pick him up and run with him to like get in and uh, pray like hell you're not gonna get (laughs) shot on the way back yeah yeah you don't even have time to think about that i mean well sort of 
you have time to process like I'm getting shot at and like when you're seeing the like dirt kicking up around you Mm. like like your footsteps and stuff Mm -hmm. those are rounds impacting the dirt around you Mm -hmm. and it's like you're just kind of like oh man I'm gonna get hit all right and then you make it and you're like oh okay and it's like I can't even imagine yeah I can't even imagine yeah but it almost feels like time slows down a little bit I bet. Yeah. That makes sense to me. Because if you think about it, the adrenaline, everything you're mm-hmm. getting, like mm-hmm. your survival mechanisms, they are kicking in. Your brain's working on like ultimate survival mode. Mm-hmm. You're able to just kind of like see everything that's happening. But, and you've also trained how to, how to react to that fire. So, Okay. Yeah. What did you eat? How do you eat? Uh, eating MREs, meals ready to eat. They come in a bag loaded, loaded with preservatives. <laughs> Um, Were you always hungry? Uh, yeah. That during that first deployment, yeah, because mm. they ended up giving us first strike meals, which are different. And what is that? It was the way I describe it. It's like if you tried to, you know, we're living out in the elements, mm-hmm. you know, getting in gunfights every day. So it's like doing intense workouts every day, and we're trying to live out of eating out of a vending machine. Mm. Like, could you imagine trying to sustain yourself? Mm-mm. Just Especially a like a big guy, like yeah. like crackers so and peanut I'm, butter. I'm not sure who got the contract for those meals, but <laughs> they were just like not nutritious. <laughs> and like there was only two. So they come in a variety mm. and there's only two that like had a prepackaged thing of like tuna. You know, think of like a tuna protein packet or something. and the one that had chicken in it. And like we were fighting over those things. But mm. I got totally emaciated. Um, uh, I got like started getting bruising on my skin and stuff because I didn't have, you know, the right proper wow. vitamins and minerals in the, in the meals and stuff. And, uh, yeah, good guys getting sick, mm. but, uh, that doesn't seem yeah. right, but you get really good. So I love cooking. Oh, I, lo- I, I, lo- I love cooking. <laughs> yeah. And so you get really good at like taking those meals and like mixing things together. And like, you know, you, I would have people send me hot sauce and stuff like that. So you add it to it and you kind of like spice it up and, mm. Um, you get really good at making them what, you know, if I sat one down here in front of you and you tried to eat it how it is, probably think it's shit, but, uh, <laughs> I probably would, yeah, but yeah, you get pretty creative. So you're done with nine months yeah. and, and you go home Yeah. and what is, what is it like to land in America after being in that kind of environment for such an awesome feeling, especially when you're going to California, I was stationed out in California. So you just get out there, the air is all like nice and clean. You're just like. America. And you shower <laughs> and you eat. Yeah. And, I mean, uh, I can't. were yeah, you married oh, we, at the time? Yeah. Okay. What I year did you get married? Before my in two thousand nine. Okay. Yeah. And so, yeah, before my first deployment. And when you're go- when you're away, are you talking to your wife? Um, yeah, except uh, through letters, like like writing write, writing letters. Yeah. And That's so all we, you can we, do. Yeah, and when we're out there for those like 30 days at a time, it would be like no contact. Like we didn't, uh, there was times that we were at a spot where we could have gotten our mail, but our commander said he didn't want us getting mail because in case somebody was getting broken up with or something like that. Distraction. They didn't, they didn't want it. Yeah, distraction. So we were kind of pissed about it at the time though. Um, like my wife's yeah. not breaking up with me. Just so so we'd, we'd, get, we'd get back and I would have like a stack of mail like mm. in boxes and stuff and, you know, my grandmother, for she didn't understand that, like, 
she baked me stuff and sent it over and then like had gone bad. (laughs) Yeah. Sweet. But, uh, yeah, I had had a really good support system from, uh, friends and family. I bet that meant the world to you. Constantly got stuff. And I was able to like, since I got so much stuff, I was able to share it with everybody. And, uh, yeah. I bet that was a good feeling. And, uh. So how long were you home first time? Um, not long. I was back in Afghanistan within it, like before a year was up. Mm. So, and when you're home, what are you doing? Are you training? You're training. So I got back, and then uh, several of us, uh, special operations medics, mm-hmm. we got selected for duty over at Marine Special Operations Battalion, and they're known as the Marine Raiders now. So uh, we went over there, and immediately went to there's a next level to the special operations medic course, mm-hmm. where you become a pro- provider, special operations provider. Mm-hmm. So you're able to prescribe drugs. Um, do war wound surgery, uh, all oh, the following wow. on nursing care, around anesthesia, for your surgeries and stuff like that. So m- much more advanced training. And wow. so you're also learning tons of stuff like about treating sort of all sorts of illness and in- injuries. That's and, intense. Uh, yeah. So, so basically we went, you know, showed up to our unit, just had enough time to like barely check in and then immediately went to North Carolina to finish that course. And then, we were sl- slotted to deploy that uh, October. So it was like we'd only been back. We got back in December, and we left next October for Afghanistan. Uh-huh. And so the difference this time for the workup was I met my team, like, the month we were leaving. So I wasn't able to get that nine months of mm. training with them before mm. we went over there. Mm. Um, which Can I ask real quick, when you came back – had you changed? Um, not as much as after my second. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, my wife would tell you, a cha- you know, started to change, but, I mean, uh, we really didn't start noticing a different, big difference until after my second. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, so you go back for your second. Yeah. This is October 2000, what? Uh, tw- 2011. Okay. Yeah. I was going to say 11 yeah. or 12. And so... Um, doing a little bit different mission this time. Instead of like flying around and like being in these areas, we were in one village the whole time and working with those local villagers to build a police force to basically like fight the Taliban mm-hmm. themselves. Um, and so that's where you get into this sort of like special operations mission of working with the local populace um, and not just trying to like go out and find the bad guys and kill them, but you're actually like trying to get them to fight them themselves. Mm. And Interesting. Yeah, so... They called it village stability operations. Okay. And so we're sort of out in the middle of nowhere and plugged into this village. And we're having like weekly Shura meetings with them where, you know, all the villagers come. Now, how do you all know that you're going to get buy-in from this village? Um, you don't. Wow. They've, And that's part of the problem. Uh, I mean, when you're talking... Strategically in Afghanistan, a lot of times we in the military we've taken, you know, hey, this worked in this one village. Let's use this in all the villages. And the problem is... You can't. It's, no, it's totally different. Mm. Um, there's totally different cultures within Afghanistan, tribes. And uh, in the Helmand, you're in, like, the poppy capital of Afghanistan. Mm. So drug, like, money is huge there. Mm. And so that's one of the additional challenges you're up against. It's not like up in... Uh, some of the other parts of Afghanistan where people are, you know, prideful in, the, in their village and their nation and everything. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of sort of um, 
Uh, it would be kind of like going to Mexico and trying to work around cartel, like cartel relation type, type stuff. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, not only do you have Taliban fighters in that area, who that's how the Taliban is also getting all their funding is from the poppy harvest. So you have those relationships. You have basically like local drug lords. You have, you know, the people who are caught up working for them. You have, um, you know, all these varied interests that are like sort of tied up in there. So it was a very difficult environment to to navigate. To navigate. Yeah. A lot of backstabbing going on and stuff like that. So, um, so I would say that sort of weighs on you, weighed on me more than just being in a gunfight with somebody. Yeah, I bet. Like, cause it's mind games. Yeah. It's, it's psychological. It's like constantly wondering like if one of your people you're supposed to be working with is going to shoot you in the back. Mm-hmm. It's like, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like we all have guns and we're standing here like, <laughs> okay. Can I really yeah. trust you? Yeah. It was much more black yeah. and white than your first yeah. deployment. And between good guys, yeah. and, you, know, you knew exactly <laughs> what the score was. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, so, so this one, and yeah, this is like during this time frame, what was happening in Afghanistan is you were having a lot more uh, what's called inside attacks, where the you know the partner nation forces were working with. So like the Afghan army, um, we would work with Afghan special forces, and uh, then we're creating this local police force from you know the local villagers, and so uh, during this time around 2011 through like. 14, everything, you're having an increase in insider attacks where we've been in this war for so long, tensions are high, and like uh, there would be Taliban that would join the Afghan National Army and basically be like, you know, spies in a sense. And then once they got an opportunity, they would kill Americans. Mm. And so this started happening a lot during that time. And so there was sort of this like additional tension between your relationship with them and trying to navigate that. And so, um, Luckily, we we didn't have one while we were there, but the team I turned over with, who took over our spot, uh, they had one of their Afghan Special Forces guys turn a machine gun inboard on them, and <sighs> luckily nobody died. Um, and they thought, like, so in that instance, you think the attack is coming from the outside. So guys were running through the machine gun fire, not realizing it was one of our, like, partners. And... Uh, and he also shot a bunch of rockets and stuff like that. But yeah, so that's kind of you're just wondering when something like that's going to pop off for eight months. <laughs> like that's li- how long you were yeah, there. Yeah, for that deployment. Yeah. And, and so and wh- what? How does a deployment end? How did you yeah. leave? The, uh, under what circumstances? Is it time to go? Um, you, you've already they've already planned that out. So like oh, when, okay. when the next team is coming in to sort of like replace you. So when you go, you, you know how long yeah. it's going to be. Yeah. Okay. So after eight yeah. months, then you come back home again. Yep. Yeah. Okay. But that, I got wounded on that deployment. So oh. at this little village spot, we have it a little outpost that was even like uh, it's like a mile north of this little village mm-hmm. and sort of in bad guy country, mm-hmm. and it would there would only be. Uh, two Marine Special Operation guys there, and then we had four Army Infantry guys with us. And so there would only be like six Americans at this one little spot, and then the rest were Afghan Special Forces. Mm-hmm. And uh, we actually had some United Arab Emirates uh, mm-hmm. military there. And so we were kind of hanging out up there, and so that's where the enemy would attack because we're like they were hoping they could o- overrun us at mm-hmm. this little outpost. And I spent a lot of time up there. Mm-hmm. So... Um, 
that's when I started getting exposed to uh, blasts and explosions a lot. Not so much on my first deployment, but uh, they would shoot grenades in inside this compound. It was like an RPG. Um, RPGs, yes. And then on their uh, AK rifles, they have a grenade launcher like we use on on ours that they actually shoot these uh, grenades in there. And uh, it launches, uh, you know, it's, it kind of lob, lobs up. and. Uh, Can you hear it? Yeah. No. You just, the explosion, once it hits. Jeez. Yeah. Um, RPGs, you can hear the rocket, because you'll hear it coming in. But, uh, yeah. So, I had been exposed to, you know, I think somewhere around 20 of these. And uh, never got hit from the fragment, but I would be like, you know, around a wall or something and get hit from the concussion of it. So I started receiving a lot of uh, blast concussions and I was the medic. So I didn't like seek out mm. treatment for it. Uh, basically like I knew at this time we had started like treating guys for this from all the, uh, the people that had been getting hit in trucks and stuff. And so if you took a certain amount of hits, you were like pulled out of country. And so I didn't want to get pulled out. of What country. was that number? Uh, three. And you had, 20? Yeah. Would you try, like, not yeah. to go to sleep and stuff? Um, no, like, I would just kind of walk it off, you know. Um, there was one uh, recoilless rifle round that came in. That's an 80-millimeter round, so it's about, like, you know, so fo- he's football, hold- football yeah, size. I was about to say, so he's holding, yeah. like, a big, big, like big... a, a football big loaded with explosives, food. and uh, wow. that hit behind me, um, probably, like, 10 meters away, and it flattened me to the ground as I was running. So I was like running full speed. Think of like the force, like running in one direction. And then all of a sudden you just like, you're flat on the ground. And that's that pressure wave that, that comes out of a, of a blast has that amount of force. And, um, we're finding out a lot now about what that does to the brain, what it does to the rest of the body. Um, does a lot of damage. So the whole the whole thing we're figuring out with uh, the NFL mm-hmm, and concussions, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, we're, we thought it was very similar to that, but it it's turns out it's so actually it's actually uh, yeah, it's worse. It's like shearing stuff at the axon level, and you know, um, the problem is it's like it's invisible, right? You know, or you just like you feel it and you think, yeah. oh, it's kind of like how we used to view hits in football, like, oh man, I took a hit, mm-hmm. but. Um, and then you gotta think while you're over there, your nutrition isn't good because you know there's times where you know we didn't get resupplied because yeah. we're out in the middle of nowhere, so we're eating like rice and potatoes. And uh, so your body can't even heal so, itself properly. So your body's not even set up. If you think mm-hmm. about the NFL football player, mm-hmm. think about his diet. Yeah, <laughs> they're fueled up. Their recovery. Yeah. they have like you know trainers, hyperbaric and, supplements, yeah. hyperbaric yeah. chambers in their room where they're getting O2. You know, so no, we're just like. In a yeah, desert. Yeah. Yeah. And you're also under the stress of yeah. wondering when uh, you're going to get shot in the back from your, you know, the guys you're supposed to be working with. So you're just, you're really not set up to sort of take take those hits. Yeah. Um, but recover. When your heart's in the fight and you don't want to leave your buddies and like, mm-hmm. you know, you're, you're, you've put your sweat and blood into working with these things and trying to like do something good in this village. Like, you don't want to leave. Yeah. You don't want to be taken out of the game. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, that was uh, sort of what led to me getting wounded really bad. So what I got my Purple Heart for was a day I was up there, and 
we came under attack and um they walked these grenades on and i was on a rooftop on a you know this is like a mud wall uh compound think of like a uh i mean their houses are made of mud mm-hmm. over there and uh so i'm just on one of the little roofs and a grenade hit the post i was in so um luckily i was low enough uh, below some sandbags that the shrapnel went over my head but i took like the direct blast from this grenade and so i walked to the back of the roof and uh in my mind I was, I was like really dazed and confused and so i walked to the back of the roof and i was yelling for the tajiman our interpreter because i wanted to try and hear what the bad guys were saying on the radio and he had ran inside <clears throat> so as i did that one of our partnered uh special oper- uh, special forces afghans walked behind me and shot an rpg and i was standing directly behind him so if you think about the, you know, have you seen a SpaceX launcher or something mm-hmm. like where the rocket blast that comes out of the bottom of rocket? Mm-hmm. So that comes out of the back of the RPG tube, and I'm standing directly behind him. And uh, so, and that's actually killed people. Um, so luckily it didn't blast me off the roof. It actually, the overpressure grabbed me and uh, pulled me, like flattened me on the roof. Um so I thought at that moment, because I couldn't see him, because mm-hmm. um, I was looking the other way, I thought in that moment that I'd been hit directly in the chest with a grenade. Like, that's what it felt like. Mm. And, Just uh, the pressure. Yeah. Wow. And so I immediately went into, like, checking myself. I thought I would be missing limbs or, like, you know, bleeding all over the place. So I started checking myself, noticed I wasn't bleeding, and then I, you know, slowly turned around, and I saw a smoking, uh, you know, RPG tube. I was like, my brain's like trying to think, you know, because I'd already just taken this other hit from a grenade. Now I just took this other one. I also had all those previous ones leading up to it, you know, over time. So, um, and my right eye was kind of twitching all over the place and stuff. And uh, so, like, slowly my brain's like, oh, he shot an RPG. Like, that's what just happened to you. And then I was like, back in the fight. So I'm like, okay, hey, we still need to trying to kill these guys that are killing us. And so I went uh, up to this grenade launcher that I was on and started shooting it where uh, we, you know, they, they were shooting from. And uh, so I was up there shooting that, getting, uh, we had, you know, camera kind of watching these, watching these uh, Taliban run around and stuff. And so I'm, you know, talking to the guys on the radio and my buddy that was up there with me, uh, another Marine Special Operations guy, is dropping mortars um and so then i decided to come off the roof once they're out of range from the grenade launcher i was on and go spot for my buddy that was shooting mortars so i went and grabbed a sniper rifle and i was looking out of this post and i thought i saw one of them and so i was like okay there's him and then i took a shot and then i like kind of looked around and i looked back through the scope and i realized i just shot a tree and i was like oh man, this isn't good. Mm. Like all of a sudden it clicked in. I was like, you're jacked up. Mm. <laughs> I was like, something's wrong. I was like, you need to stop what you're doing right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so I like, put the rifle down and, uh, and so, uh, you know, the, the guys ended up getting away and, uh, we, I was kind of, uh, I started getting the neurological signs at that point. I was, uh, getting very angry <laughs> like very intense and uh 
Um, so I actually was, uh, we, we ended up not getting a bomb drop approved on these guys. And so I was really angry and went outside and power cleaned more than I'd ever done. I PR'd on power clean, uh, uh right after this gunfight. So that's not what you're supposed to do <laughs> when, you, when you have a head injury, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> and, uh, so it wasn't until the next day. So me being stubborn again, I didn't want to be taken out of there. Um, so I slept that night and the next day we were playing volleyball with our Afghan special forces guy. We had like a little tiny court set up and I was completely out of breath. I was like all over the place falling and uh, I was like, okay, you're kind of jacked up, but whatever, it'll work out. So then that night I went on post and uh, I was standing up there and I started getting the gambit of neurological symptoms. I was seeing stars, my vision was coming in, I was about to pass out um, mm. and uh, having difficulty breathing. And um, so I called my buddy on the radio and he was you know, inside and I said, hey, just so you know, if you don't hear from me for a while, I might be passed out up here. And uh, <laughs> so luckily he, he came out there and brought some guy to like take my place. And uh, that was the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And he was like, I realized at that point, like, okay, I need to have him check me out. Mm -hmm. So I had trained my guys up like how to, how to treat things and stuff before. So he was familiar with sort of the treatment protocol for concussions that we go through. And so I kind of re-explained it to him and have him give me the test. The trick was I'd given so many tests to other guys who were getting exposed to blast that I had the card memorized. Mm -hmm. Have you ever done like a the memory test? test. Or, yeah. <laughs> or like a memory test where they mm -hmm. say, hey, remember these five words or whatever? Mm -hmm. I had all those memorized because mm -hmm. I was given this test so many times. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, dude, I'm going to nail this test even though I'm jacked up. Mm-hmm. And he's, he's going to have to shut up about like me being <laughs> messed up and I'll be able to go to sleep or whatever. And I won't have to leave. Like I don't want to leave. So he gave me the test and I failed miserably. <laughs> like wow. I did really bad on it. And I was like, oh boy. It's like the drunk person who thinks they're going to nail the DUI test <laughs> yeah. and they're all over yeah. the place. <laughs> like, oh, I totally crushed yeah. that. Yeah. And I had this thing memorized and I'm like, oh boy, that's not good. <laughs> and so, um, but me being stubborn, I was like, All right, yeah, I'm jacked up. Just I need to sleep it off or whatever. And he's like, nah, I think we should call the, call the other special operations medic back at our main main camp in the village. Mm -hmm. I was like, okay, well, if it makes you shut up, I'll give him a call, let him know what's going on. So we call, I call him up, kind of tell him what's going on. Next thing you know, they're like, oh, yeah, we're getting, we're going we're to go get you, and we're going to bring you back down to this main village so we can, you know, assess you, mm -hmm. give you a proper assessment. So then, uh, typically I was known as like the super calm, chill guy, but I was like getting really angry because mm -hmm. I didn't want to leave. And, uh, also I had, you know, the, like the aggression symptom of a neurological injury, which mm -hmm. I don't know, uh, how many people have experienced that, like being on like receiving side of it or like, I didn't even know that was a, yeah. a side or a symptom or, yeah, it is. So like when people get uh, head injuries, uh, like anger and aggression is one of the signs and symptoms that can come up. So wow. a normally like super chill person. That's a like, red flag if they're yeah, yeah getting pissed yeah. off. Mm -hmm. And they don't normally. So uh, 
I actually, they're getting radio checks in the trucks, getting ready to drive up and come get me. And I came over the radio and I was like, oh, hey guys, you can uh, stand down. You actually, you know, the, the mission got, they're, they're getting ready to go on a mission to come get me. And I tried to shut it down over the radio. <laughs> and they're like, oh, that's Dan on the radio. Like, don't listen don't to him. <laughs> we're going to get him. Like, that's the guy we're yeah. talking about. Yeah. <laughs> and so they ended up coming to get me and uh, went back down there. He gave me, you know, more detailed neurological exams, decided I was jacked up and they wanted to get me evac'd out of there. And uh, still, I tried to talk my way out of it, but they wouldn't have it. So, yeah, so I ended up getting flown out and uh, came home. Nope. Went back to Camp Leatherneck. And technically, that was my first hit or concussion, you know, so. um, First one on paper. Yeah. (laughs) yeah. Documented. Yeah. So um, I lied about my symptoms. I basically said I was perfectly fine, even though it felt like my head was splitting in half. And, uh, yeah, so then I ended up catching a helicopter back, like, four days later, back to my team. Wow. Got exposed to more blasts, got more gunfights, and, uh, yeah, so that was a really good deployment as far as experience and uh, a good time with my buddies, but definitely I got jacked up on that deployment, and coming back, my wife noticed an immediate difference. How did you eventually get home? Like, what was it that eventually brought, got you home? Um, we ju- we finished our time there. Oh, so, oh yeah, I finished oh, up that deployment. Oh, okay. So you didn't come home because of an injury. No. Even though you should have. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you come home, and yeah. what what is home like? And um, what where are we now? What year is this? Two thousand. Two thousand twelve. So okay. I got wounded in. Uh, like what March of 2012 and came back in June I think May okay. or June and when do you find out you're being awarded the yeah. Purple Heart for that um once I got back yeah um they they'd put me in for it uh right right after it happened mm-hmm. and then um yeah I actually tried to tell them not to <laughs> um and that was from me having uh my older brother blown up and burned really bad I've always like sort of compared myself to him and that was part of the problem too is like uh i don't think of getting these blast concussions as a major injury right i'm not shot i'm not right missing a limb Mm -hmm. i'm not burned over 30 percent of my body like my older brother was you know so um so i guess i didn't take them as serious Mm. and um when you're in that, when you, when you're operating at that high level of, you know, think of professional sports, but you're at like the professional sports level of the military, like you're just, you, you think you can like deal with it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think with brain injuries, we don't, a lot of stuff, it takes time for things to like sort of manifest that on like sense. how bad it is. Yeah. If you think about how CTE develops over time and stuff like that. Like, it's almost like you don't realize how bad you are until years later. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, sort of also once you pull yourself out of that environment mm-hmm. where you're still, like, mm-hmm. working at that high level. Because, mm-hmm. you know, you can... Your adrenaline, you can't leave your brothers. Yeah. You, you've got reasons so to pull it together. You can sort of pull yourself together and, like, mm-hmm. maintain some semblance of, like, you know... You can hide but, it, unlike yeah, a, yeah, a burn work, or a bullet wound. But or, then once you're home, like, your family life suffers and, you know... Um, they're the ones that are seeing like you falling apart. And, uh, so right coming back from that deployment. So we, you know, we fly back and, uh, um, 
I immediately noticed I was starting to run words together in sentences. Um, and I was having really bad headaches. And I actually had what I coined thundergasms, which is like and when I would orgasm in sex, there would be this like, felt like a lightning strike go up my neck and like to my forehead and it didn't feel good. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like, it was a very painful thing and I would just kind of like fall over. Um, I was like, oh man, something's wrong with your brain. Like this isn't Dang. good. Um, so I actually got s- seen by a neurologist but we immediately started our workup training for the next deployment. Mm. And uh, so, um, and in our training, we're training with explosives too. We're, when we're doing a, mm. a practice hit on a house or something where we're going in to clear it, you know, we're exploding the door mm-hmm. off and we're standing like right right next to it mm-hmm. and uh, clearing rooms, we're throwing flashbangs and stuff. Um, and so what we found out actually now <laughs> is all these little hits all add up. Mm. Um, How much time did you have to at least kind of, um, you know, regroup before you were uh, experiencing blasts again? Um, We had like two, two weeks or so. Oh, so not very long. (laughs) Of of leave. So my wife and I went to... So you pretty much jump right back into it. My wife and I went to Scotland and Ireland. It was actually a really fun trip. Uh, (laughs) We went like, rented a car in Scotland, drove around and then uh, went over to Ireland and went all the way around the coast of Ireland. Uh, for two weeks is fun, mm. but um, two weeks no blast. Yeah, yeah. Um, so started training for the next deployment and went and saw a neurologist and military medicine in general has been very behind the curve when it's come to blast injuries mm-hmm. and not knowing how to deal with them. So we were still under the oppression, sort of like a concussion from football. Like, mm-hmm. oh, you've had your week off your brain's perfectly fine like mm-hmm. go again mm-hmm. you know and so her advice was leaving that appointment was yeah just uh don't get blown up again and so i'm sitting there and like when she said that i'm like playing back through my head like all the explosions i was exposed to last deployment and i'm getting ready to go to the same area you're like again. i've been blown up a lot and i'm like oh man hmm, that's quite the challenge so i'll <laughs> see what i can do you know? but i'm super optimistic you know like okay whatever but i i knew like um at that point, I'd start to realize, like, this is probably going to be my last deployment. Like, um, and I just, I really wanted to go on one more with my guys, you know, because a lot of guys that I just deployed with were going with me again mm-hmm. on this one. So I wasn't about to leave them. And so um, I noticed during the training for that deployment that my, I was pretty bad off even during training when we'd be shooting around barricades and stuff, just the muzzle blast from a rifle being in close proximity to me was enough to like make me nauseous, um, splitting headache, like like balance off and stuff like that. And so um, me being, a, you know, having all this medical training too, I think is also why I benefited um, sort of through my healing journey is being so in tune to what was happening in my body Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and knowing sort of how the body works where, you know, some other guy might not realize this stuff and, you know, they're getting a really bad headache. So they're like, Oh man, I'll just drink a bunch of alcohol, you know, Mm -hmm. to go to sleep or something. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but I was very aware of like what was happening and it was like big warning signs like, Hey, this is not good. Mm -hmm. Um, from a sustainability standpoint, like, I was planning on staying in, you know, my whole life was to join the military, right? right? 
So I was like, I'm going to stay in for 30 years until they, you know, or until they force me out. Yeah. Um, I'm going to be, you know, master chief and all this stuff. And so I was kind of seeing my career coming to, uh, you know, a short, you know, yeah. a, a pre- preemptive end. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but I went and deployed again <laughs> and, uh, that deployment was probably the gnarliest for the feeling of that sort of tense environment of wondering when you're going to get shot, shot in the back. Yeah. It was my job, that deployment, uh, cause just being as uh, the medic on the team, you take on other team roles too. Mm-hmm. Uh, cause you're working in such a small group and this deployment, we actually split up our team. So normally where you'd have like 20 guys tackling that village area. Right. And, uh, we split up and we only had, um, uh, like half our team at this village and then half our team back at a district center. So, um, so we all had to take on additional roles. And so my role was to actually train and lead this Afghan local police force. So I had 300 Afghan local police that I was in charge of and everything from their pay, getting weapons to him, ammo, food, like, how they're setting up their security, how they're interacting with the populace. Like everything about them was like my responsibility. And so I'm meeting with them regularly and this is when tensions are really high. And so this is in 2014. So as far as timeline in Afghanistan, we've kind of like gone through that troop surge phase of 2009, all that stuff. And now we're starting to say, Hey, we need to pull back. So now we're starting to bring people out of areas. And what that's creating is sort of this like, uh, vacuum effect where we're pulling out of these areas that aren't ready we're just saying okay hey we're done and like pulling out but the village isn't ready to provide security for themselves and there's all this dynamic you know in this area you know it's the poppy central so it's like you have all these other factors that are making it very difficult for this area to like be able to turn turn the tide and like provide security for their own village Mm -hmm. um and so we had stopped like paying them we're like hey you need to have the afghan government pay you we are going to stop giving you weapons like we're going to stop giving you ammo and i'm the guy that has to tell them like hey you're not getting paid (laughs) and uh when people have been paying for years and all of a sudden and like fighting alongside them and stuff and all of a sudden you're like oh yeah betray them yeah Mm -hmm. and it's not my call it's like it's being you know right I can like only, they feel like you're yeah. betraying them. And they, you're the guy they're dealing with. Yeah. So tensions were very high. And uh, that was, like, very difficult to navigate. And it took a lot of, like, out-of-the-box thinking and sort of meeting them on their level of um, the way they interact. Mm-hmm. And um, so, so that was the most tense for that. But we actually got in, like we only ended up going on like three patrols at deployment and we ended up in gunfights in two of them. And then one was an all day sort of, you know, surrounded situation where we're in a compound fighting all day and then even into, into the night. So it was like the least amount of overall combat in one deployment, but the most intense, but, yeah. but one of the most intense days was that like last patrol I did. And I got exposed to a bunch of blasts on that, that day from recoilless rounds and uh, uh, RP, rock, pr- rocket propeller grenades, yeah, RPGs. So how long was that deployment? Uh, seven months. And then you come home? Mm-hmm. Yep. 
And uh, that's when I was like, okay, we need to start working on my time in the military. Like my enlistment contract had already like started coming to an end. So mm-hmm. I started exploring like, okay, how is this going to, how's this going to end? I need to try and get some treatment for my brain. And so started. You knew it. Yeah. So basically started getting treatment for my brain and they decided, Hey, you can't do your job anymore and we're going to medically retire you. So I'd been in long enough that, you know, basically they're saying, Hey, if you hadn't got wounded in combat, you would have been able to finish out your career. So mm-hmm. we're, you know, and reach retirement. So we're retiring you now. Mm. So that's when I was medically retired in 2015. And how was, how was that decision for your wife? Um, I think she was happy with it Yeah, <laughs> because sure. if I had just kept my mouth shut and not s- sought like treatment, I could have deployed again. Kept going. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you know, I had kind of just, that was probably the hardest decision for me in my life at that point was mm-hmm. choosing when to get out. Mm-hmm. Like when to saying like, Hey, enough of like, <coughs> how much do I want to put myself through my wife through is, is, they're more to this life than the military, even though up to this point, my whole life has been about mm-hmm. the military. Mm-hmm. And I just sort of challenged myself at that point, like, hey, you just got to figure out something different. You got to make um, make this next chapter better. How did, how did it affect your home and your marriage and your day-to-day? Um, I know that's a big question. Yeah. It put a very big strain on a relationship and it's, you know, she, we got married, we had known each other, uh, even back when I was in the, uh, presidential honor guard as a casket bearer. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it's, and we got married right before my first deployment. deployment. Mm -hmm. So she had seen me who I was before. Mm -hmm. And basically I think that's why sometimes it's harder for the family members is mm-hmm. watching the person you love mm-hmm. and who you've known like very intimately change so drastically mm-hmm. and uh you know and they're gone mm-hmm. so they're gone for eight nine months at a time they come back and then they're like seem like a completely different person um early on i was dealing with a lot of like the rage and intensity stuff so i was very explosive And the way I would describe it is something, it became where like anything that was my brain triggered is sort of like meeting with conflict or something. Mm -hmm. Um, My brain would have trouble processing like what was happening, Mm -hmm. like situations. Mm -hmm. Um, Like I almost exploded on a guy that was just asking me to move my car from parked in front of his house and stuff. Mm -hmm. And I used to be like the guy who was calm, cool, collective, you know, always had control over that and so that's where um so from my standpoint i started getting down on myself Mm -hmm. i'm seeing like you know myself change into ways that i don't like you know and being like so you start that's where i think it turns like Mm self-destructive and then Mm -hmm. um and so it's just it makes having a relationship very hard yeah and um so Early on, I realized that if I didn't, if I didn't work on me, like there was no way I was going to be able to help Christina in our relationship. Mm-hmm. Like I have to be good in order for y'all to, to be to good. Help. Yeah, mm-hmm. and so 
I just made it my mission to get better. Mm. And that was, that was the goal. So I wasn't even thinking about what's my next career. What am I going to do next? I said, I need to try and find something that works to dial down this intensity, the aggression, all that stuff. And, you know, just start taking down all these with, with brain injuries, you're dealing with a, you know, polytrauma. It's like, uh, laundry list of symptoms and issues and they're all compounding on each other so i just started you know tackling the ones i could and um yeah i that's why i moved to dallas because i knew they had a couple brain centers here and my older brother had been medically retired out of san antonio so him being burned this actually helped me a lot is him having already gone through the process Mm -hmm. um he was able to sort of mentor me through the process of like being a wounded guy. Mm. And, um, so I came here, I went through the Cerebrum center here in Dallas. They're actually not around anymore, but that was a night and day difference. Um, through, I would say vestibular wise, Mm -hmm. my balance, I went from, uh, looking like I was drunk all the time. Like I'd be in conversations with people and people like, are you drunk? I'd be like, no, (laughs) And it's because I was like standing there weaving back and forth and mm-hmm. it's because my balance was so jacked up from all those blast waves hitting the uh, inner ear. So it's like your equilibrium yeah. was all messed up. Yeah. So they were able to retrain that there and uh, it was, and through their other like therapies they did there, the aggression just went like way down. Like mm-hmm. I just was super chill afterwards. And uh, it was so that, and able to like kind of have some clear thought. Um, but the migraines and stuff like didn't go away. Um, they were sort of reduced in the nature of them before I went there. I ended up in the ER with stroke like symptoms. I had like droop jaw and like the whole left side of my face is numb and had difficulty, lost consciousness, had difficulty talking and stuff like that. So, um, the severity of those, uh, you know, they classify them as migraines, but I started calling them blast brain episodes because mm. they're not really like typical migraines. Mm. Um, so, so yeah, that's, that's sort of what I still deal with on a daily basis. But what about the thundergasms? Uh, I got to ask. No, those went away. Sweet. Yeah. That was, that was like, <laughs> a, Goodness. that was like an <laughs> early <laughs> symptom that like came on. It was like kind of like alarm bells, but luckily those, those went away. Good. Um, but yeah, so. So what do you do now? How do you, like, what's your life? How, how yeah. have, I know you've healed in a lot of ways um, physically, mm-hmm. but psychologically, what, what do you do? Get weird with it. Yeah. <laughs> That's my mantra. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. you have to think outside the box mm-hmm. and um, find what works mm-hmm. because um, we, military medicine, Western medicine, when you're dealing with an injury that we don't understand a lot about, a lot about, Mm -hmm. you know, throwing, uh, psychological meds at a physical brain injury doesn't work. Um, it's like not even throwing, you know, blind darts at a, at a wall. It's, uh, so there really isn't, uh, a definitive treatment plan for this. Mm -hmm. And so, what I tell pe- other people with, because um, there's a lot of guys from this war that are dealing with this, mm-hmm. um, is... Get weird with it. Yeah, and don't expect big, like, swooping healing changes. It's 
it's tackling like little things at a time Mm -hmm. and through consistency and um, little improvements. It's all about like little wins, Mm -hmm. right? So Mm -hmm. I try and think of what's the one thing I can be doing to like make my quality of life like a little better, Mm -hmm. you know? And so, and once you start taking those down, it it really does improve your life and starts to make make this chronic pain issue uh, manageable. And for me, mentally, um, I could deal with the pain. Mm -hmm. It was, um, it was more of like the chronic pain aspect of it that started weighing on me mentally. Mm -hmm. It was, it felt like this monkey on my back. I want to be productive Mm -hmm. and I want to be able to do all these things. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm having these, uh, migraines come out of nowhere. And, you know, right when I'm ready to sit down, you know, record a podcast or, you know, edit a podcast or video, you know, for my YouTube page or something, all of a sudden I'd, you know, get hit with this and it like messes up your whole day. Crippling. Yeah. Yeah. And from somebody that wants to be like active, productive, you know, it's hitting me during workouts and, um, it's, it starts to weigh on you over time because you start feeling like, you know, there's this monkey on your back, Mm -hmm. you don't have control over it, you know? And so it's really like that loss of control Mm. that starts like leading you down the path of depression and isolation and stuff like that. Um, you feel like you're dealing with it alone. And so that's when I realized, Hey, I need to go see somebody for this. Mm. Like I need to go talk about this and figure out and, uh, get ahead of it. So I went, uh, I tried going to the VA that didn't work out very well. Um, I ended up getting laughed at my first therapo- therapy appointment um, because I because t- I told the therapist I was planning on going to school and uh, she laughed at me and Gosh. thought it was hilarious. She's like, how can you uh, expect to go back to school if you can't remember to brush your teeth? And uh, so that didn't go too well. Mm-hmm. But, um, but, and I think a lot of people get discouraged after an experience like that. Yeah, like for sure. not all, not all doctors are good. Not all, you know, providers are good. And, you're going to run into sort of hateful people like that, but you can't let that stop you. Like it's your, it's your healing journey. Yeah. Like you got to figure it you out. You have to really take it by the reins. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that's what I tell a lot of people. Yeah. It's basically like helps not really coming. Like mm-hmm. you have mm-hmm. to take the initiative yourself to like care for yourself right. and your body. And, uh, I love that help is helps yeah. not coming. Like it, it lives yeah. in you. And luckily my wife was very supportive during this mm-hmm. process as in, she was able to understand, like, I kind of need my space mm-hmm. to heal. be able to heal and do what I need to do to make these things better. And um, I think for her, be, for her to have the wherewithal to not take that personal, mm-hmm. just, I mean, that shows how yeah. healthy and strong she is. Because a lot of times it can seem selfish. Yeah, for I, sure. I'm spending all this time. Like working on myself, and I'm feeling better. But you know, she has she, she, has she had time to like deal with stuff. Like she still feels disconnected. Mm-hmm. She's still trying to wonder like who this person is that I'm married, mm-hmm. you know, married to and stuff. And you feel better instantly, but it, th- your your partner doesn't yeah. like take that change. They're not feeling the change instantly, you know. Right. So they they still sort of have the expectation of they've gotten used to the new you, and now you're like changing again and stuff. Mm-hmm. So. It They've really, got to fall in love with you all over again. Yeah, and it, it really is difficult. But for the people that can sort of 
give that space and just realize, um, you know, somebody's not being selfish by taking care of themselves. Right. They're taking care of themselves so they can be better for you, right. like better, better partner. And, uh, you know, it's about working together. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, but that's love. Yeah. That's really, yeah. that's big love. Yeah. So, uh, I would say I've been very fortunate mm-hmm. through, through my healing journey to not only have like my brother's mentor, but my wife and, uh, so just sweet. the medical background too. the job I picked has also like set me up for being at. So I've, I've talked a lot about it on my podcast, um, with others and just try to share a lot of that information with others. But, um, so now you yeah. do art, you yeah. write poetry. Yeah. So something I, I learned, uh, that was helping is just doing things different when it comes to a brain injury. Um, it's all about, uh, creating new neural pathways mm-hmm. and you have to do, do different stuff, do things differently, do new things to like create new neural pathways in your brain. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, I got into sailing. That's been really good. A lot of, uh, I noticed that I started building off-road racing team Mm -hmm. and, uh, I noticed that working in the garage, like, you know, just working a wrench and stuff, something about it felt really good. Getting a simple input output, I'm putting something into something and being able to see something come out of it. And, uh, something about that, you know, I, hand working together Mm -hmm. is is helping the brain as sort of an exercise and so sailing is like i kind of theorized that it would be good for that and i was also in the navy for 10 years and never went on a ship i was just (laughs) with the marines running around in afghanistan so um i feel like i needed to earn my sailor card (laughs) you know officially yeah so i got into sailing and it was just like i thought you know when you're like trying to tune into the wind and you're playing with the sails the whole time, you know, pulling on this rope, that rope, and uh, it it feels good. It's like an it's, it's like an attention focus exercise mm-hmm. for the brain where you can maintain it. Whereas like sitting and reading stuff with a brain injury, like you you really have trouble with focus and attention and things like that. Mm-hmm. So, um, so yeah, I've just like kind of it's it's thinking outside of the box like that and sort of trying, um, even if it's things like yoga mm-hmm. <laughs> where before I was like, Oh, that's for like effeminate people. No, <laughs> it's know? not. <laughs> yeah, no, it's not. <laughs> I was very wrong. And, uh, <laughs> yoga has been so good for me. Mm-hmm. And I actually went to yoga after my second deployment. So when I had started tuning into like this, uh, aggression and stuff and like realizing how distance I was feeling from people, cause I'm a people person. I love connecting with people. And so I was like, this needs to change like now because mm. I don't like feeling disconnected from people. Yeah. Oh, this is not good. And so for whatever reason, you know, I'm problem, problem solving this. And for whatever reason, yoga came up in my mind. I was like, you know what? That's kind of like a, I thought, you know, this is my limited understanding of yoga at the time. I was like, Oh, you know, it's like the spiritual kind of experience. Everybody's getting together, doing the same thing. And, you know, they're kind of like, vibing out together or whatever and i was like and i don't have to talk to anybody i can just kind of be there with everybody doing the same thing and hopefully that'll like help like this issue and it was awesome it totally worked yeah like because you're you're picking up on other people's energy you're giving them some of yours it's so true yeah and so sharing your spirit without saying a word yeah even though that like going to yoga was like the last thing i wanted to do (laughs) or you know and so 
I tell people like if you feel any sort of intuition or gut feeling about mm-hmm. something, just yeah. give it give it a try. Like mm-hmm. what's worse that's gonna it's happen? Really good. You're not gonna like it, and then you just don't do it. You know, try something else. How did you How did you start to write poetry? Um, well, I started writing poetry unbeknownst to myself. Like I didn't even know I was doing it. Really, <laughs> um, I. I guess I was taking a college class here and one of the first like bon you know, you get bonus points or whatever if you did like there's this whole list of things. You could like do a performance in class or something like that. And one of them was a poem. I was like, Oh dude, I'll write a poem. <laughs> so I wrote a poem and uh I didn't think anything of it. And apparently I wrote a couple more poems. I've written my wife some poems and then I've podcasted with some marine authors, um, or a marine author. And he put out a book on poetry. And then I met, uh, I went up to Marcus Institute for Brain Health up in Denver. And I met a ranger there who's an author. And they had done this, uh, they'd all put out poetry books um, in this other marine. And so they did this tour along the East Coast where they met up with veterans. And they would do readings from their poetry books. And then um, they'd have veterans from that local area get up and read poems if they wanted. And so sort of like an open mic Mm -hmm. and it went off awesome. So they decided to get together and put together a book of poetry from, uh, you know, combat vets of Mm -hmm. like our current era. And so I had met this guy and he's like, Oh dude, you write some poems. I was like, yeah. Um, he's like, you should submit and see if, you know, we'll publish them in this book. So then I went to look, okay, let me see what poems I have. And then I realized I had been writing poems like, (laughs) I had like 10 of them already. I was like, oh man, like apparently I've been writing poems. (laughs) (laughs) And so with that book coming out, you know, I submitted to, to got published for that. And now, uh, since then I've been working on getting my own, uh, poetry book published, but it's going to have art as well. So I've been doing a lot of art, uh, therapy as well and got into painting. My wife is an artist, so she's been able to sort of help me through that. And, uh, we've been able to connect a lot through that and it's I, I never did really art before I would you know s- sketch or like doodle around in class and stuff but it's been uh it's been a really good way to sort of analyze these these things that are happening to me these changes over time where I'm at now the ex- whole experience I just went through you know in that military that if you think about going from being a casket bearer you know thrust into combat you know over three deployments getting wounded you know all the all the changes that were happening all the tense stuff like all the relationships yeah art's been a very good way to explore that Mm -hmm. and see how does that fit into like me my place in the universe like Mm -hmm. and um it's just been a lot of fun i have like a lot of fun doing it and so I'm really excited, really excited about it. And when does your book come out? <sighs> Whenever it's done. I'm not putting, <laughs> I'm not putting a deadline on it. I had, mm. I had a deadline on it I before like it. and, uh, it's just, it's a great I want answer. it to be right. Right. We have a, I have a really good friend. Um, she's getting her doctorate over in Scotland right now. And, uh, it's about being like outdoors and nature and stuff like that. Nature has been a big, getting out in nature mm-hmm. is a great healing tool. Oh, I think yeah. that people overlook a lot, but, um, 
she she's my editor so i've been mm. sending all my poems to her you know getting um getting feedback feedba- mm-hmm. feedback on it and finding it. its process has just been so much fun and so i'm just trying to enjoy it and good for you so all the poems are i think i have two poems to like finish like final edits you know on but um it's pretty much done and now i'm finishing up all the art pieces for it so some poems i've written about art pieces I already did. Some are about dreams I've had. Um, I'm a dreamer. I know my name's Daniel, but like, <laughs> um, I, I definitely have like very vivid dreams and stuff. And I always like remember them when I wake up. And uh, I write a poetry about the human experience, sort of where we are as a culture right now, and this huge technological disruption that's happening. And you know, within the human species, it's kind of crazy. And uh, so I, I like exploring that and sort of uh, I like challenging people's thought process. Like I like challenging people to think outside the box. So I love how you said um, you encourage people to just think differently. Like mm-hmm. There's not like doctors will tell you do this and you'll feel better and it may work. It may not. But everybody's healing process, especially with trauma. Mm hmm. And brain injury, it's, it, there's no, there cannot be a formula that says do this and then you're going to be cured and you're going to be better. Yeah. So before you go, will you read us yeah. one of your poems? Yeah, sure. <laughs> I actually brought one today because I thought that might come up. But uh, yeah. I see, so, I see your book and so I'm like, this one, something in there. This one is from one of the paintings I did. Okay. And it's on... It's on my Instagram if you like went through my feed. You could, okay. you could find it. But uh it's it's gonna be like the a the poem or the art? The art. Okay. And it's sort of like a side profile of my head. Um and there's like red uh paint running down the painting. That's okay. what it looks like. Okay. And there's like some gold and silver in my hair and stuff like that. Okay. <clears throat> okay. So this is called A Part of Me No One Sees. So it's a poem about the painting I did. Okay. Um all right. The universe knows every facet. Does this make us free? Our souls bound to fleshy vessels carve a record through dimensional reality. Digital images of ourselves project from our fingertips. The smart AI algorithm can predict words from your lips. Our extended group of friends smile, laugh, comment, and move on. We press like, heart, follow and accept friend requests until we are gone. Who do you let in close? Can you count them on two hands? They see the pain, feel the love, and are the few who understand. What are the parts of you that absolutely no one sees? What are those parts? How many sides are there to me? It takes a little elbow grease. How hard is it for you to look inside from those parts of you, the ones you want to hide? I must have dark inside of me, partially devoid of light, and one of my darker sides is a shade of gray, no white. That is good. Yeah, so that's, the the ending there is about, like, that one part of me specifically I was painting about in that. So I was kind of just exploring a part of me and, and while I was doing a paint night. We were doing a Friday night art night at my house. What is Friday night art night at your house? We just get together and be creative. A group yeah. of people or you and your wife? 
Yeah, me and my wife, whoever's there. Yeah, we've done it with my older brother and his wife that that night. And my brother kind of came up with the. He's like, "Hey, um, how about we all just, you know, there's the part of ourselves that, you know, somebody would know from like googling us, right? And you know, or if somebody saw us on TV or right. social media, and then there's the people who like maybe friend of a friend who knows something about us. Then there's our friends who know stuff about us. Then there's our close people who and know then about us. And there's the people that. And then there's all the parts of you that, like, nobody sees Mm -hmm. and you are just aware of, you know. Mm -hmm. And so he's like, let's paint, like, one of those things. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I did. And then I was, like, inspired to write a poem about it. Really good. Yeah. Really good. Well, I don't even have – I don't even have words for this – for everything that you shared. I – I feel so, um, I don't feel inadequate, but I feel inadequate. (laughs) (laughs) Like I don't want to feel inadequate because I think that's a waste. You know, I think that we're all created Mm -hmm. to do different things, but I've always, I mean, I look at myself and I look at my children and we're all just, everything's been so easy, Mm -hmm. you know, everything about our lives is so easy and everything about our lives is so easy because of the price that so many people who have gone before us and who've walked beside us and who we're standing in the line at the grocery store with and we don't even know. Mm-hmm. You know, there's that like cheesy thing and I'm sure you've heard it a thousand times that freedom is not free. Mm-hmm. Like it's not. It 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 um you have paid you have paid an enormous price so that I don't ever have to think about my freedom Mm -hmm. you know i don't have to worry about my freedom my children don't have never had to worry about you know what to wear or where to go or where they're allowed to be Mm -hmm. and um you know it's because of of you and and the millions and millions of people who've gone before and so many people who've died so many people who are injured so many people who are marginalized today so many people who are forgotten you know and I don't, we don't even know the half of it. Yeah. We don't even know the half. So many people who can't get treatment. So many people, I, I, I can't, the, the stories that I don't even know, you know. So, Daniel, I just, I got to thank you and I got to thank your family and all the men and women who have gone before you who've just been so brave and done things that I could have never done. Like, I was not created to do what you've done and I just thank God you were because I'm an I'm a ninny like I am a yeah. ninny well, oh. thank you and you don't have to feel inadequate it's, <laughs> well, it's, it's just, don't, don't sell yourself yeah. short it's it's you've, just, had a, you've had some yeah. rough stuff oh, I, I'm the one just, who's inadequate here <laughs> yeah. it so, just puts you know it puts a lump in my throat considering like what you've seen and what you've experienced, what yeah. you've done and what, and you signed up for it. Yeah. Like you just went and volunteered for it. You know, yeah. our, my parents were, you know, my dad was assigned to it and you know, he didn't want to do it. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot more like that. So everybody goes through <sighs> adversity though. And that's where we can connect and talk about yeah, it. Yeah, It's true. It's true. Well, thank you so much, Daniel. You're just, you're amazing. I don't even, I don't even have, a, I don't even, like, I, I need time. <laughs> I need a yeah. minute. Yeah. <laughs> I need a minute and maybe a beer. Another beer. Yeah. <laughs> so thank you. Cool. And, and, and thank your wife. Yeah. Like, it's people like your wife who are just as badass as you. So mm-hmm. 
maybe more badass. Yeah. <laughs> really? Yeah. Thank you.